0: The reading today is from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Good morning. Oh, my mic is back. I'm so happy. That other mic I had it was this big and it was making me cross-eyed and I was looking at my notes. I don't know if you guys know, Thank you, sound people. Many blessings unto you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I ask Holy Spirit for you to fill each individual here with your presence, that we may experience heaven on earth. And I know, Lord, that each of us has different tests and trials that we're going through, and sometimes it's hard for us to see that. And I ask for you to minister, to comfort, to bring peace to those who are hurting. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we started to look at the ever-so-popular topic of submission. I mean, it's an awesome topic, or to be subject to someone. And so we took a look at being subject to every human institution, namely civic government. Then we looked at reasons why that's found. So that was found in verse 15, and under human institutions was found under verses 13 through 17. And in verse 15... It says this, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then Peter wrote about being subject to folks we work for, our employment, how we are to be subject to our bosses, managers, supervisors, people who are in authority over us in verses 18 through 20 and the reason for that is found in verse 19 for that is a gracious thing. When mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then next week, we're starting to look at chapter 3. And we'll notice Peter continue to write on this subject of submission moving into the family structure. But today is not that day. We're going to look at verses 21 through 25 at the ultimate example of submission. Now, it's interesting that Peter even writes about this subject because he's a guy that really struggled with this idea of submission earlier in his life. Right, You take a look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Let me read this for us. And when Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not settling in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, that wasn't a guy who knew about how to be subject to authority or knew about submission. This wasn't a guy that knew what submission was really about. But you look at how he changed from being rebuked by Jesus to writing this letter, that you could see that Peter was transformed in these years of following Jesus. No longer was he relying on himself to make things happen like when he was like Ninja Peter chopped off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't doing that stuff anymore But he was being led by the Holy Spirit. And you can see a huge difference in Peter prior to the witnessing of Jesus' resurrection and after witnessing Jesus' resurrection. You can see this huge change. Prior to Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Peter didn't get the example of Jesus' submission. And it's just like many people in the world and many of us who think that the way to get ahead is to coerce or to manipulate our way into getting ahead. That the way... To lead is with power and with might, that we have to win. And winning requires a series of successes and victories. But you look at what Jesus said right after he rebuked Peter, back to Mark chapter 8, right here in verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Deny myself? Take up my cross? You want me to follow that? That's crazy. The world thinks that's crazy. That's not how you get ahead in this world. I mean, deny nothing. Deny nothing. Take everything you want. Live it up, right? Listen to your flesh. Follow that. So you see how we're really different from the world. We're really different. And what was the example that Jesus gave us? In terms of success, I don't think all of us would say he was all that successful if we were really honest. If we were really honest by taking a look at how we live and what we value and what we do, I don't think we would look at Jesus and say, yeah, he's all that successful. Because the way that we define success, he just wouldn't fit into that mold. Because Jesus didn't have a good job or he didn't have a good business. Jesus was not a homeowner. Jesus didn't make that much money. He didn't have a fancy mode of transportation. He was not married. He didn't have children. He didn't have a great education. The things the world looks at and the things that many of us attach to success, even live out in terms of living that way, Jesus simply didn't have it. And even the way he led his team, you ever think about this? There were only 12. There were only 12. I mean, does that sound like a Fortune 500 company to you? It's 12 guys. Big deal, 12 guys. Some of you guys have businesses larger than that. And you don't see him hired to be some motivational speaker. His company did not IPO. Like, it didn't have any of that stuff. He didn't have multiple sites. He didn't write books. So when we look at Jesus, we just don't see what we deem as success. And we never see him as puffed up. We never see him self-absorbed or talking about self-importance. It's just a lot different from the leadership that we see in today's world of celebrity CEOs, right? Celebrity chefs, celebrity pastors. I mean, we have celebrity everything today if you have celebrity pastors. You have celebrity everything nowadays. And Jesus was always about God's way completely subject to the way of the Father. And we'll see that in our study this morning. Let's start on it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now, the word translated from the Greek to our English word, example, is just a really, really, really cool picture. Here it is. It's a picture of copying This is the only way I got through organic chemistry, by the way. Anyway, but in my head, what I see is my preschooler, my beautiful, wide-eyed preschooler. Just so cute. I just want to eat her up. So she's continuing to improve on her letters, right? And the letters that she's tracing over are under some tracing paper, and they are an example as to how she is to write. Right, the template's right under the tracing paper. And as she continues to learn how to write her letters and the alphabet and using the template of letters as an example, she will learn how to write not only her letters, but she's going to learn how to write words and essays and poems and reports and dissertations and books and letters of love and appreciation for her dad. All that kind of stuff she's going to learn how to write. And we don't all write the same, do we? We all write a little bit different. We all have our own style of writing, but we all have the same likeness to the examples we were given when we first learned to write. So that your A might look different than my A, but we can discern that it's an A. So that even if our styles are different, we can read each other's writing, unless you're a doctor. I don't know what happened to you guys. Anyway, and how our life looks with Jesus as our example, we bear his likeness because we learn from his example and we're not all cookie-cutter. We have our own styles, but we have his likeness. My dad is a retired architect. I remember growing up, he had these large rolls of tracing paper. So it was way before, you know, everything's computerized nowadays as an architect, right? You guys have your whole system of how to do things. But my dad's old school. Like, even to this day, he's semi-retired. He still does stuff, but he's drafting board, the whole thing, the whole Brady thing. He still does that. Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch. Brady <laughs> Bunch. And I remember as a kid using this tracing paper, right? Laying it over some things and like copying. That's what he used to do lay it over the original plans there, and then he'd do it because there weren't these big copy machines and things like that. Everything was by hand, right? So he'd copy this stuff and he'd copy the original to the tracing paper. And so that's the picture of the word example in verse 21 that we have an example in Jesus so that we might follow in his steps. Now, What is the section of this scripture about? Now we have to go back to what this section of scripture is about. What we've talked about in the last two weeks. What is this about? What is Jesus an example of? Submission. Submission. To be subject to others. And so we're instructed to follow in Jesus' steps of submission. Not to chart our own course, but to use him as an example. To follow in his steps. When people read the letters of your life, can they tell that you learned how to live from Jesus can they tell that that you were traced from his template the originals of Jesus see once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you receive mercy right first Peter chapter 2 verse 11 and as followers of Jesus you have been called by Jesus to follow him just as Peter was called by Jesus to follow him Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Isn't it great that we are God's people, that we have received God's mercy? Now, let's see what else that includes. Let's fast forward to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, because we have all these glorious thoughts, right? Oh, yes, we received mercy. We have a relationship with God. But there's other things, too. And after you have suffered a little while. Bummer. It doesn't say if. After you have. The God of all grace who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a great promise. Now you remember that we are sojourners, we are exiles in this world, and that doesn't give us an excuse for escapism and not to be involved in this world. But while we are here, we are to follow Jesus' template. We are to follow Jesus' example. And we know suffering is involved. Or you can look to 1 Peter 2, verse 12, when it says, when they speak against you as evildoers. Not if, when they do that. Or you can look to 1 Peter 2, verse 15, that there are ignorant, foolish people to deal with. There are ignorant, foolish people. None of it says if. Or 1 Peter 2, verse 18, that there will be good and gentle bosses. But there will also be unjust bosses. And so that leads us to our scriptures this morning. Verse 21, right? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So how do we follow in Jesus' steps? This is found in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, number one, we do not revile in return. We don't insult in return. How many are guilty of that one? Just four of us. Yes. The rest of you are holy. Five. Thank you, brother. Okay, number two, we do not threaten. How many here? We're better at the threatening part. There's less threatening people here than reviling people. Great. Great. And three, we continue entrusting ourselves to God. Now, for those of you who like lists like last week, this is your kind of sermon today because here's this list. And we're going to skip verse 22 for now, but we're going to circle back around in a little bit so that we can kind of keep in the flow of verse 21 and then how in verse 23, okay? So back to number one, we do not revile in return. For an example of that, let's look to Matthew chapter 27 starting in verse 39, 39 through 44. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now keep in mind this was after Jesus had already endured false accusation and false imprisonment. He was already beaten up. He was already tortured with a whip, a crown of thorns embedded in his head, publicly humiliated. He stood before the people naked and bloodied, standing there while the people chose a convicted felon to free instead of him. That all happened before this, right? And he was forced to carry his own cross, spat upon, dirt kicked upon him. Right? Pastor Buyers deriding him, they're wagging their heads, religious leaders mocking him, and even a robber who was crucified right next to him reviled him. A guy that was dying next to him, in the same boat, is doing that to him. And we know that it's not that Jesus was powerless and that Jesus was helpless, right? He said in Matthew chapter 26, verses 53 and 54, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? See, Jesus is our example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't strike back. He didn't throw insults back. Right? He didn't say, like, wait and see. You guys wait and see. I'm going to spank you hard. (laughs) When we deal with folks who treat us poorly, right, in our work colleagues or classmates or family members or neighbors, neighbors, and strangers, it can be really challenging not to revile in return. Really challenging. And as a follower of Jesus, he's our example. And as a copy, we do not revile in return. Another example in Jesus but this time about not threatening, because he did not threaten, right? Number two, he did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And so let's look back to the passion story again, back to Matthew chapter 27. Let's look back there, starting in verse 22 this time. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Now skip down to verse 26. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him... To be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's quarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. When he suffered, he did not threaten. See, the Christian life is not always pleasant. Oftentimes there's suffering. Where's the opportunity to even be Christ-like without suffering? Would we even have the opportunity? How would you know your faith is real if you didn't have the opportunity to put it into practice? How do you know you won't revile if you've never been reviled? How do you know you won't be reviled in return if you've never been reviled? Right? Or how do you know if you'll threaten others if you don't experience suffering? And so the third way here we follow Jesus as our example is we continue entrusting ourselves to God. So when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now rather than reviling those who reviled him rather than threatening those who inflicted suffering upon him, Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35, "Vengeance is mine." See this is where Paul quoted from when he wrote Romans chapter 12 verse 19, right? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is where the writer of Hebrews quoted from when he wrote chapter 10 verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's all going back to Deuteronomy chapter 32:35. Jesus knew the reviling and the suffering He went through that it was not going to be fully addressed during His time on earth. And much of the injustices that we face in our lifetime will not be fully addressed during our time on earth either. See, vengeance is God's. And you see how the ideas of prosperity and good health and success within this life that it can often be misleading. Sometimes we have this idea that everything can be made right on this earth when it can't. And that's not to say that we don't put efforts into positive change, into addressing injustice issues. We're instructed in First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. First Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. First Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So we believe in addressing injustice. We believe in putting effort and doing positive things and doing good. That's not to say that we don't do those things. Because our actions are part of the Christian life. But we are sojourners. We are exiles of this world, right? 1 Peter 2, verse 11. And our eyes are to be toward the eternal, just like Jesus, who is our example. Now before we look at verse 22, I need to point out two really significant words in verse 21. And it's these two words. For you. For you you see 1st Peter is not only a handbook of morality it's a handbook on how to live like Jesus and so you look at verse 21 again let's read this verse without the phrase for you read it without the phrase for you and it goes like this for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps Completely changes the meaning when you insert for you. Listen when we read it with for you. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Not that he just suffered. He suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, those two words for you, they change everything. It's what leads us into verse 24, the key verse of our section of Scripture today. It's what changes Christianity from being simply about morality into a loving and gracious relationship with God. Because if we took out for you, that verse could just be read as a moral lesson. It's just a moral lesson. That there are bad people in this world that do bad things to other people and just like the bad people who did bad things to Jesus and yet Jesus didn't do anything in return. He didn't threaten. He didn't revile. He was a nice guy. And so we need to follow Jesus' example of not reviling in return. Of not threatening when we're being suffered. And trusting our higher power. That's what it could be read as. And that would be a universally accepted message, wouldn't it? People would love that. Our Bay Area culture would soak that in, like, yes. Don't revile in return. Don't threaten. Yes. Yes. We love that. And this message, it can be branched out into a bunch of things because we could branch it out into nonviolence because we don't revile in return and we don't threaten in return. So yes, nonviolence. We love this. Talk about that. We can talk about faith in humanity. Because, you know, if we treat each other this way, our humanity, we're going to be better humans. And you can take that message a bunch of different ways to fit into our culture. The problem is, is it's not biblical. That's the problem. There's some elements of it. Just like out in the world, there's elements of truth and elements of things being biblical. But not really. Because for you gives us the nature of of the revilement and the suffering and the injustices Jesus endured, just as I read in the Passion story. Yes, Jesus is our example, but He didn't suffer for the fun of it. He didn't suffer just to suffer. He didn't even just suffer just to leave you an example. He suffered for you to leave you an example. He didn't suffer just to suffer. So what was for us? What is for us? That's verse 24. Okay, we're going to verse 24. I promise we'll go back to 22, but we're going to go to 24. But I need to point out something that's really important, what Jesus did for you. And it's addressed here in verse 24. It's why Jesus suffered for you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's what was done for you. Jesus didn't come to earth simply to give us an example of how to live and die well in this life. That's just a small part of it. But a lot of people can do that. A lot of people have done that already for us. We didn't need Jesus to show us that. Mahatma Gandhi is a great example. Mother Teresa is a great example. Nelson Mandela is a great example. Buddha is a great example. They all did that. Bono did that. Or he does that. But Jesus did what no one else could ever do. Even Bono relies on Jesus for this. You can ask him if you ever meet him. He himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, no one else can do that for you. They can all be an example, but they can't do that. Now we go to verse 22, as I promised. Okay, 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is really important to understand. This is the only reason that verse 24 works. And so to get a better understanding of this, we have to look back to the Old Testament as a background about sin and atonement and how that was made. And so this important knowledge can be found in the book of Leviticus. And you can read the book of Leviticus if you want to just kind of skip to what we're talking about. You can look at Leviticus 4 and 17. And those are going to give you the backgrounds of sin and atonement. And if you don't get this understanding about sin and atonement, you will not be able to fully understand 1 Peter. You won't get it. See, sin is a serious problem. Sin is what causes division between God and man. So in order to mend this division, the priest back in Leviticus, this is all in Leviticus, would bring an unblemished, unspotted animal such as a goat or a lamb, and he would lay his hands on the head of the animal and symbolically pass on the sins of himself as well as the people that he was representing onto this innocent animal and so he would symbolically pass on all the transgressions that caused a division between God and man passed on to this animal then the animal would be sacrificed and this is how sin in the old testament the old covenant was dealt with it's all in leviticus right so you keep in mind that many of the early Christians had this Jewish heritage. So when Peter wrote about these things regarding Jesus, they totally tracked with what Peter was writing. When Peter wrote in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. They knew exactly what Peter meant. Because they could trace it back to Leviticus. It made complete sense to them. The sacrificial lamb, the scapegoat, right, that was driven out into the wilderness when the priest laid his hands on that scapegoat, all the sins symbolically going there, and it went away. And so they would understand these pictures that the sin passed to these animals, and they got it, that these animals were innocent, and the sins passed on to these innocent animals so that when the animal was sacrificed, our sins were with that animal's blood. It was gone. It died. And so when that animal died or when that animal left, like the sin was gone. And so they understood that after that is when they could have peace with God. And they got this picture. And so this is what Peter's picture of Jesus suffering as one who committed no sin, who bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, this is Peter's picture that he's conjuring up that those innocent sacrifices provided for those people so that the sin died with the sacrifice. The sin died with the goat leaving and being out in the wilderness somewhere and dying somewhere out there. That it died. And so when Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, "...but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or spot." that really connected with those who were very familiar with the picture of sacrifice found in Leviticus. They got it. Because sacrifice is a fundamental part of the atonement of sin. But it's not just any sacrifice. It's sacrifice without blemish. It's sacrifice without spot. And in Jesus' case of sacrifice, one without sin. Who bore our sins in His body. See, only Jesus was without sin. He is the only one that could be your sacrifice. See, Gandhi, Buddha, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, even Bono cannot do that. They can't do that. Only Jesus can pay your debt. He is the only one unspotted, unblemished. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, he died for all of us. And if you come to him in faith, repenting of your sin, recognizing and acknowledging that he bears his sin in his body, welcome to the family of God. Welcome. But I have to also welcome you to this. Welcome to dying to yourself. Ew. (laughs) Many people don't like that one. And living to righteousness. Ew. I love sin. That is not fun. You're invited to being transformed by the power of God that you no longer have to live in sin. No longer have to be addicted to what you're addicted to. No longer in bondage to the things that pull you away from God. You can truly be free. See, without Jesus, you have no choice but to live in sin. That's not freedom. You have no choice but to sin. Once you come to Jesus, you have a choice to sin or not to sin. To live in righteousness or not to live in righteousness. Freedom. And there's a transformation, a change, a difference between when we give our lives to Jesus and when we didn't. So, yes, Jesus is our example, but that's not all He is. That's not all He is. He also bore our sins in His body on the cross. And He's also the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. See. You were straying like sheep in the past, right? You were straying like sheep. You you were wandering off. You were drifting off. And that's why sheep need a shepherd. Are any of you familiar with shepherding or working with sheep or anything like that? We're not, right? So I have to give you some context. Sheep are dumb. They're really, really dumb. They get themselves in a ton of trouble. They just kind of go off and bah, bah, ba And they end up in like really, really strange places, which is why you need a shepherding dog, right? They keep them inside. That's why you need a shepherd, because you can't just let them go off because they have no clue what's going on. They get themselves in danger, and they can get themselves killed, and they get themselves in some really, really weird spots. And this is just all of us. You're dumb sheep, as I am. I am the leader of dumb sheep. So, (laughs) the dumbest of sheep, right? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. All. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. See, we all have iniquity. We all have sin that only Jesus could bear on the cross. And it's not that he was only our example or that he just bore our sins upon himself. It's also this he's also our shepherd, he's also our overseer. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus didn't leave it at, man, I left you guys an example. Just follow it. I'm done. Just follow it. I did it already, right? Just copy, copy. Just do it. And he didn't do that. Or he didn't say, I took care of your sins, guys. Come on, it's all done. I left you an example, and I paid for your debt. Come on, figure it out. That's enough. Jeez, I'm tired. (laughs) He has compassion for us. He recognizes that we're helpless. He recognizes that we're harassed. He recognizes these things. He sees these things. So he's not just our example. He didn't just bear your sins on the cross. He's also your shepherd. I'm not going to just leave you hanging. Yeah, I did that all for you. But I'm not going to just leave you. I'm your shepherd. I'm your overseer. I'm your guardian. Right? So some of us may identify with Jesus in terms of saying, Yeah, he's our example. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. And some of us may even take it a step further and say, yeah, I accept Jesus as my Savior. He bore my sins, and he's a great guy. But how many people this morning acknowledge that Jesus is also your shepherd? That he's lovingly guiding you in your helpless state, in your harassed state? Because I think some Christians kind of stop at step two. Yeah, Jesus is my example, and he died for my sins, but he doesn't love me that much to kind of keep coming with me. He doesn't have that much compassion on me to love me through my junk. You're getting an incomplete picture if you don't have all three. That he is your example, that he died for your sins, but that he's also your shepherd. He's your loving shepherd. He's guiding you. He has compassion for you. He knows that you're harassed. He knows that you're helpless. He is your guardian. Psalm 23 My favorite psalm, one that I meditate on every morning and right before I go to bed. I flip-flop between this psalm and the Lord's Prayer. But can you say what David said here? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So many sheep without a shepherd in this world. So many people without a guardian. A lot of people that have Jesus as an example. I'd say the whole world sees that. Who can deny that? Whether you're a Christian or not, that Jesus is an example of how to live. A lot fewer people Have Jesus as an example and accept him as their Lord and Savior, that he took their sins upon the cross. And even fewer have him as a shepherd. See, Jesus is all of those things. But in the third step, that he's our shepherd, do you realize he has compassion on you? That he sees your helplessness, that he sees when you are harassed. Jesus is our example that we are to live by, even though I personally find it extremely hard not to revile in return. I find that really hard. When I'm driving, it's hard. You get like that friendly finger gesture. You're like, hmm. Do not revile in return. Right? Or the threatening when suffering. Right? Threatening when suffering. I mean, I even do this with inanimate objects, let alone people. Right, Like, I kick myself. Like, yesterday, I'm walking with my daughter, Trader Joe's, and she steps in front of me and I kicked her boot and I had flip flops on. I'm like, Argh! and I wanted so badly to threaten that boot. Like, you terrible boot that just walked right in front of me. It's just hard, right? Continuing to trust God with justice, that's really hard, especially for many of us, we're activists. We want to do stuff. We want to get out there and we want to do stuff for the injustices of the world. And to just kind of trust that to God, that's hard. That's really hard. But that's why he died for me. He bore my sins because I have a really tough time not rebelling against those things, not reviling, not threatening, not completely trusting him. I need him for that. I need him to shepherd me. lovingly hold me and heal me and say like it's okay don't get mad at that boot so much and just kind of be my guardian and save me from myself just like he did for many of you and I pray that your relationship with him is whole that he's not just merely your example that he's not just your savior that he bore your sins but that he is your loving compassionate shepherd So, Jesus is our example of how we are to live submissive lives to human institutions, right? Civic governments. Peter's talked about that. And then he went on to talking about our positions in terms of submission in our employment, right? To our bosses and being under God here. And next week, we're going to look at how this looks in the family. So, let's pray. God, thank you for your example. There's no doubt, Lord, that you're a good person no one can argue that no one can argue that you're a good example lord on how to live morally on how to live righteously anything like that lord you're top notch there and lord thank you for bearing our sins on the cross and here's where things change lord because no one could do that except for you but lord just take it a step further and you've also shown compassion to us, recognizing our helpless state, recognizing that we are harassed in this world. And perhaps, Lord, there are more people that need to know that, that you are the good shepherd, that they need to move from just this distant relationship, knowing that you're an example, knowing that you bore our sins on the cross upon your own body, that you're a loving shepherd, that you actually want a relationship, that you want to shepherd us, oversee us in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, for that intimacy to grow within each individual here. And for those who don't even know that you bore their sins upon your own body for them, I pray, Lord, for their salvation, the salvation of their souls. And if that's you this morning, at some point, Today or in the week, would you reach out to someone, and I'm inviting you to reach out to me. I'd love to pray with you. I'd be honored to do that. You can email me. You can just meet up with me in the front here, in the front pew, and I'd be honored to pray with you. God loves you.